Our Father in heaven, we honor your name as holy, and we just prepare our hearts and our minds right now to focus on you, focus on your word. And even in a lesson like this, that's more of a, um, a general overview topic, it's not specific to any scripture. Lord, I pray that you'll be here with us and that scriptures that we do read and the concepts that we're talking about, um, that, you would, uh, that you'd be honored and that you would glorify your name and that you would help us in our life. Help us apply whatever we need to apply. Help us have a good conversation about evangelism and apologetics and how that mixes together. Bless me and help me to, to teach in a, in a way that's memorable and can help the brethren here. Lord, uh, we're always dealing with technical difficulties and distractions and other things, and I pray that would go out, away from our minds and that we would be able to focus on you. Thank you again for all the good things you've given us. Forgive us our sins. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so this one is a little bit more of an overview um, in the curriculum. It's uh, the idea that we're kind of like last week, sort of wrapping up all the stuff that we've been talking about. And so this is really, uh, you know, this is always the classic thing that people have critiqued when you think about um, old school uh, preaching, like expositionally, you know, like you'll go through the book of Romans, but it takes you like six years to get through the book of Romans. And the question has always been like, if you go that deep, great, but what happens when you get to the end of that six years? Do people even remember the beginning of the letter? You know, it's been so long. And so there's something to be said about having overview lessons and saying, okay, do you guys remember what we talked about the first or the second week when we first did this seven weeks ago, right? It's kind of wild to think that it's been seven or eight weeks, but, um, you know, we're wrapping up here and it's the end. And there's so much to think about. There's so many things to consider. Uh, I hope that you guys have had this thought in your own head as you've talked to people about Jesus, you know, the people in your family, um, even talking about world issues and things at work, you know, even if it remains really general. You're trying to think in a presuppositional mindset where you're thinking, how does God see this? How can I glorify God in this situation versus how the world expects me to act? And you have to walk the line. I, I know that there's questions about that in people's minds, like, am I Am I pretending not to be a Christian if I don't walk the line? Am I walking the line? Am I becoming like that whole, you have to be as gentle as doves and wise as serpents, that kind of thing, right? There is a such sense in which we don't know when to pick our battles, and that can be frustrating. But, uh, you know, as I've been praying for in the last few weeks, I, I pray for boldness and courage for all of us that you do have to pick your battles, but that doesn't mean never fighting, right? It's like, nope, this this battle's not right either, and it's like you haven't been fighting for 10 years. You know, <laughs> when do you actually pick a battle, right? And so at some point, we have to stand up for what the word, the word of God says. Sometimes we have to, you know, if we're salt and light, we actually have to affect the world, right? We actually can't put our light under a basket, and we can't leave the salt not on top of the meat, you know, uh, it's, or whatever analogy you want to use. You know, we actually have to be um, doing something. So, the first part that you have in your outline, uh, why does apologetics matter? This was our first kind of in, in, uh, introductory topic that we first talked about. And we were saying that the discipline of Christian apologetics is for all Christians, right? It's not just for people that are going to be on the street. This is something that you're going to have to deal with. And the classic text is 1 Peter 3.15. And just because it's the text in which we base so much off of it, I'm going to read it to you. Or you can turn it to there if you'd like. 1 Peter 3.15. And it says this, but in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, 
always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, than it should, if it, that should be God's will, than for doing evil. Powerful uh, statement, not even just talking about uh, Christianity and, and apologetics just a, as a world statement, you know, always being prepared to make a defense for the things you believe, and, you know, in a good conscience, knowing that it's better to suffer for doing good rather than doing for evil. And uh, I think that in our day and age, uh, people that I talk to are very willing to say the ends definitely justify the means and whatever means necessary. Uh, and that's not the way that Christians should think, because as it says at the end of that scripture, if that should be God's will, right? God's in control. God's the one who ultimately is guiding uh, the things. And if we get, you know, say a bad situation or bad leaders, that is a direct consequences to the world for the choices that they've made, right? Because fact is, Christians will always be in the minority. We saw that last week had Protestant Christians are actually a very small percentage of uh, the people in, in the United States. So Christians should be able to explain why they have faith in Jesus. Christians should be able to critique unbiblical worldviews. Christians should use their minds and their intellects to the glory of God, right? In 2 Corinthians 10, it says Christians are to take every thought captive to Christ. And in Matthew 22, Jesus said the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and with all of your mind, right? So using your mind to the glory of God is something not only commanded, by God, but it's something that we should be encouraged to do. We shouldn't think, oh, we just need to go with the Spirit, or we have to feel like a move of the Spirit. You know, I'm, I'm tapping into my Pentecostal roots there. But you don't have to do that. You actually can prepare things in your mind, be ready beforehand. You know, I, I remember uh, someone, one of my old Pentecostal friends, saying that, oh, well, I don't like it when uh, people have prepared sermons. And a lot of the times, I don't like when people have prepared prayers. And I think we also kind of feel that way too. We, we want to be extemporaneous when we're praying. And I understand that. But a lot of the praise, prayers that I actually do before this, I actually write out. Because if God can be present in, a, in an extemporaneous prayer, like I'm praying off the top of my mind, he can also be present, you know, a couple days beforehand when I'm preparing the prayer and I want it to be structured around the lesson that I'm doing. Something to think about. Maybe I'm wrong. But I've always thought preparation and using your mind is much It's going to be clearer for you guys, you know, even in the prayer portion of it, when I'm praying for what I want help with in this conversation. Number four, Christians throughout history have used apologetics to the glory of God, right? We we talked about this in the first uh, area, how this has always been kind of part and parcel of evangelism. People go out, they meet other worldviews, they conflict with those worldviews, and then they have to form defenses and say, okay, you're saying this thing about your gods or the way that you believe the world is. And here's how we review it. Even in the Bible, you have Paul at Mars Hill interacting with Greeks and talking in, about you know, using their own poetry, using their own sayings against them to, in order to help communicate uh, the truth of the gospel. But, with all that said, those are why apologetics matter. The, the balance to that is we do not reason people into the kingdom of God. Right? Christian apologetics answers their questions, and it removes distractions. Right? They're saying, well, I can't believe because I, I can't imagine the flood happening, or I can't believe because I don't believe in miracles. Right? And we can give them a reasoned defense why we believe those things, but reason alone will never get a person in heaven. You can't convince a person of it in a purely intellectual uh, you know, 
through purely intellectual argument. You know, questions will, should be expected, right? Because people are gonna have questions about it. And we should welcome those questions. We should not be surprised or threatened by the questions that we're going to receive. But at the same time, as we answer that, don't think by answering the questions they have about those issues, that that's the gospel or that's actually what's gonna save them. Because at the end of the day, even if a person doesn't fully understand those things, you and I included, right? You're gonna get questions that you're like, I don't really understand that question or I don't, I've never studied that topic. But if you couple this apologetics with evangelism, your ultimate goal will be pointing these non-Christians to faith in Jesus, right? Not to, ar- not to win an argument, but to articulate and defend the truth and the reliability of placing one's faith in the person and the work of Jesus, right? That's ultimately what we're trying to do. We're saying, I'm getting rid of these distractions. You have these questions. I'm going to either shelve them for now, or I'm going to answer them directly, and then I'm going to say, well, now ask, let me ask you a question. What are you going to do when you die? Are you right with God? What's your religious background? That's a, that's a safe one, right? What's your religious background? Okay, well, when you die, according to your religious background, because most people are Catholic or they've grown in some kind of Christian perspective, how are you going to be right with God when you stand in front of him? What are you going to say for your, your sin? And people, like, those kinds, of, those kinds of defenses and then redirecting the conversation to be about what you're actually trying to talk about, which is, let me tell you about how you're actually right with God, right? Jesus died for your sins and then rose on the third day to prove that he is God and that he can forgive sin. Romans 1.16 says, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of salvation for all who believe. God saves through his gospel, and we as his ambassadors are trying to communicate that. Really hit home on this, because this is the, the reason why apologetics matter, right? It's, it's only a means to an end, and in a good way. Any questions on that before we move on? I know we're going through overview topic right now. No? Okay. Number two, that should be on your outline as well. It is. Is God, is God good and powerful if evil is real? This is when we were talking about the problem of evil, right? This is the, or the problem of pain is another way of looking at it. And as a review, we were talking about how evil is real, God is all good, and God is all powerful, right? Those three things are true. So, the question has always been, well, why doesn't God solve all of that pain and all of that evil now? And our, as, an, as a review, because obviously each of these topics are as large, go back and I think that all these talks are actually recorded onto Podbean on the website if you want to review these things or you missed it. But what we came to the conclusion of, God will end suffering and pain. I put in there Revelation 21, right? The end of the Bible has that picture. It has that picture of the end of the suffering and pain, the execution of his justice. Um, that's not only revelation, but that's prophesied in the Psalms and the prophets. And God himself has experienced the worst human evil on the cross. He knows human pain and sorrow. He came here and he, he un- underwent the same kinds of pain and suffering that we undergo. The Bible is united in teaching its own authority, despite the fact that it was written. Oh, I'm sorry double-sided. God's ways are above our ways. He's outside of our time. So he's eternal. So his perspective is different than our perspective. We, we look at it in a very limited way, right? In the same way that when we're growing up and our parents do things that seem arbitrary or they don't want to explain themselves sufficiently to, you know, our 12-year-old minds, it's because we don't have the conception at that time to understand 
our parents' motivations because they've lived so long, right? A great illustration that uh, C.S. Lewis told was, you know, if you ask a small child, let's say 10 or 12, what the greatest thing in the world is, right? It's the greatest thing. Could probably say something like Disneyland, maybe chocolate, right? Something great. Oh, man, if I could eat chocolate all day, no, no consequences, that'd be great. But if you ask like a 25-year-old, they probably say marriage, you know, sex, something like that. They, they have totally different priorities. They think of totally different things. And if you said chocolate, like, I guess it's okay, but nothing to write home about, right? You know, like, I can even say no to chocolate every day. I don't care. Your, your perspective totally changes, even in that amount of time. Now think about God, right? Internal. It's been around for, you know, in, in terms of our time scale, right? Like thousands, hundreds, thousands of years. Who knows when he created, right? And like, how long he was with himself in unity and trinity and then created and stuff. His time scale is completely different than ours. You know, if you're even around for a thousand years, right, ten years would feel like a blip, right? I, I sometimes think about that when you read about Adam and Eve and how long they lived, right, 900 years. Can't even imagine it. Methuselah, right, 970, 69, 969. Yeah, it's, a, it's an amazing age to think about, right? Uh, I even think about um, getting off topic, but if you actually read the story of uh, Esau and Jacob, it's really interesting because, you know, Isaac, he's blind. He needs to give his blessing to Esau or Jacob, right? We all know the story. And he's like, I'm dying. I need to give the blessing, right? And so he, the whole thing happens. You know, he's supposed to bless Esau. He ends up blessing Jacob. And then he says, I'm sorry, son, I don't have anything for you. And Esau's mad and goes away. And there's all the conflict between Esau and Jacob after that. But the funny thing about that story is that Isaac lived for like another hundred years. <laughs> You're like, wow, that was dramatic, dad. You know, <laughs> it is really interesting. I mean, who knows? Back then, you never knew when you were going to die, right? You could have a fever and you could just pass away in your, in your sleep. But point is, is that our time scale needs to be focused in on uh, God's timescale. Like, we have to try to align with that. We have to try to see how God was acting even in the Bible, how there was hundreds of years between the times when he showed up and did something amazing, and then the next time he showed up. I mean, we're talking large chunks of time. But to him, it wasn't a large chunk of time, you know? In fact, there's times when he's warning Israel that he's going to judge them, and then it's like 80 years. And you're like, that's a long time to, <laughs> to, ju- to basically keep sending prophets. Hey, hey. This is going to happen. This is going to happen. They keep killing the prophets, and then it actually happens. And then they're acting like, never warned us. So, reviewing that, God will end its pain and suffering. We know in, at the end of Second uh, Peter, it says that the, he destroyed the world once with water, but he will destroy the earth later with fire, and he will remake the earth, and he will execute his, judge, uh, his justice, right? Opening up the books, and he will um, deal with all that pain and suffering then. The problem that we have when we think about wanting that pain and suffering to end now is we see other people's sins and we don't think of our own sin, right? Because the fact is, before you were saved, before you knew the gospel, if God decided to come back and end it all, right, no person's going to be spared. We're all going to be judged, you know. uh, The the only reason why we are spared is because we have the covering of Christ, right? Christ's um, righteousness covers us. Uh, any, ta- any questions about that before we move on? No? Okay. The next one. What about those who have never heard the gospel? It's another big one that we might deal with, right? So I'm just doing the, the major hits of the things I think we're going to hear the most when we talk to people about uh, apologetics or the gospel. We're going to hear what about the problem of evil, and what about those who have never heard the gospel? 
right? That's another one that you'll hear. All humankind is already under God's judgment because all men and women are sinful, morally accountable to God, and must give an answer to him. That's the biblical answer. And there's so many references to that. I listed them. Well, I listed all the ones that I was going to read. Romans 1, 2, and 3, Isaiah 40, 53, 64, John 3, Acts 17, Hebrews 9. Let's turn to John 3, because it's the most, uh, John three sixteen because it's the most famous one. Uh, at least it was. Uh, I, I wonder if it's still the most famous verse, but it was, you know, on banners, you know, at football games and other things like that. I think it still is to a degree. But it's the one that kind of like sparked um, Billy Graham and things like that, right? It's like the, the one that we all learned in vacation Bible school. You know, that's the first memory verse you learn. At least it was for me. It says this, For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. But let's keep going. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Hmm, Sounds good. I like number 17. Let's go to number 18. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people loved the darkness rather than the light, because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light, and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. The rest of that verse kind of tonally changes things, right? Because instead of it just being kind of one-sided, right? God's loved the world, and so he just came to the world to save the world. Okay, great. But here's the judgment, right? That people loved the darkness rather than the light. He was the true light that came into the world, and we killed him for it. And I say we because our sin is what killed the Son of God, because we loved our darkness rather than light. And it was only until the gospel shined a light in our hearts, regenerated our spirits, that we could understand that. And then instead, we decided to come to the light. So, this is, not, this is one thing that I always bring up, is that we're not special in terms of, like, well, we kind of figured it out, or we kind of realized we should come to the light of our own uh, volition. And that kind of diffuses a little bit of the idea that all mankind is under this uh, account- accountability to God. So one of the tips or um, acronyms that I saw online was this idea of the four C's. I don't think I put this into your notes, unfortunately. You can write this down if you're interested. The four C's are creation's witness, the conscience when sin, culpability in Adam and Eve, and commission of sin personally. So the four C's are this way, creation's witness, and that's the idea that everywhere you look, you should understand that the God is there, right? Uh, if you look at the, ama- the amazing way that all of nature works together in this way that it's, it's fundamentally... Uh, incalculable how all these things could possibly work together in such a way that it happened randomly. One example, in the rainforest there are tons of bugs, as you can imagine, it's a giant forest, and there are all kinds of different breeds of ants and grasshoppers and things that would destroy the forest if they were left unchecked. Ironically enough, there are mushrooms, funguses, that grow and when they spore they actually can embed into the brain of an ant and the ant becomes a zombie ant and walks into its uh, little hive, and the, the mushroom will blow up in its head and will infect other ants, and then they'll start dying. So they actually have to start taking these zombie ants outside, far outside their camp, and 
basically like leave them to die. But before that happens, it usually cuts the population of these ants down by half. Now, if we didn't have those spores that did that, the ants would overgrow the forest and tear down the entire thing. In fact, even war between ants wouldn't stop them. They would just keep expanding the outer borders. Here's the funny thing. There is a mushroom specific to every ant breed. So not one mushroom does this to all the ants. There's a specific mushroom for each one, and for grasshoppers, and for slugs, and for other things like that. Now that just happened. Just randomly happened. Well, that's great. I'm glad the rainforest happened uh, and could keep that way. That's, uh, that's one example on the microcosm. Then you think about DNA on a very small scale, right? DNA encoding, it's like programming. It's, it's, it's amazing. When you think about words on a page, I use this example. This doesn't mean anything. This is just ink on paper. But it has meaning because we are communicating. We are, we are uh, logical creatures that can say, these symbols mean something. And I can communicate that to you and you can understand, right? We teach our children that way. Uh, they say that the human brain actually has that. They have the ability to learn every language programmed as a child and you start losing it as you get older. You start losing the ability to pronounce certain kinds of phonemes. So your mind is actually already ready to receive any kind of language, but then it kind of solidifies into one or the other. That's why teaching children multiple languages young is actually beneficial is because they don't lose so much. So we have DNA that can program information, which doesn't have a material idea, right? It's all abstract. Then you have the universe itself, the stars, black holes, suns, right? All these things rotating in such a way that we never crash into anything. <laughs> Jupiter is the bodyguard of the universe. We talked about that. It stops asteroids all the time, if you look that up. If without Jupiter having its gravitational pull, we'd be pulverized by approximately 100 meteorites every day. And that's an amazing thing, that it stops that kind of stuff. So we are sitting here in Creation's Witness on the giant scale and on the small scale, and there's people that says, eh, random, just happened. Conscious within. But even if you deny that, you can't deny that for some reason we all have this moral understanding that killing people is wrong, taking things that belong to others is wrong, lying is wrong, and we may suppress that and we may console ourselves like, well, I need to tell this lie because of this reason, and I need to steal this because I really need it more than them. But the fact is we feel bad. The only reason we don't feel bad when we get older, unfortunately, and the Bible talks about this, is this idea of your heart getting scarred over. You have sinned so much that you no longer feel the pain of your sin. And that's a sad thing, too, because we never want to become so dull to our conscience that we never even think about God. We're totally, totally fine uh, living our lives and sinning the way we want to. Culpability. Even if you deny those two things, God makes it very clear in his word that when Adam fell, he as our earthly father, our spiritual father to a degree, to the first Adam is what we call him in the Bible, his sin passed down to all of us. And you know how we know that? We all die, right? We're all going to die because of the sin of Adam. Now, there are questions about uh, the idea of age of accountability. There's a lot of people that hold that idea. And I'm not, gonna, I'm not here to debate that. That's a huge topic on its own. I will say that if you are interested in my view on that, read the book by John MacArthur called Safe in the Father's Arms. He deals with that extensively, this idea. But even if there's an idea of an age of accountability, your children will still die because of this corruption that's come in the world through sin. Yes, brother? What was the name of that author? John MacArthur? <laughs> did I say, oh, did I say it too fast? I'm sorry. Mac Arthur. <laughs> John, Johnny Mac. 
so even if you believe in that, the last one is commission of sin. The fact is, most people you're going to talk to on the street have committed some kind of sin personally, right? It's not really an, a question of like, well, that's not fair. I wasn't there with Adam. If I was in that garden, I would have sinned. I would, I would not have sinned. It's like, well, you've sinned now, right? So that's mute. Anyone who calls on the name of the Lord God will be saved. This is something we know, right? So all mankind's under judgment. Anyone who calls on the name of the Lord God will be saved. And the Bible has examples of people who are saved yet have incomplete information. But they are saved in the faith, uh, they are saved by faith in the God of Israel who revealed himself. So the examples here, do I have this in notes? I do not. Uh, Hebrews 11, Acts 10, Joshua 2, 2 Kings 5. If you need those, uh, come ask me afterwards and I'll, I'll write them down for you. But there are examples, and I'm, I'm sure that you've had this in your own life, where when you were saved, you probably didn't have complete information either. If I asked you, what's the tulip, right? What's total depravity? You'd probably like, well, I don't know, you know, because you're just, you know, I, I believe in Jesus, I believe that he was God, and he died, and he rose again. That's all I know, right? You don't understand really the Trinity yet, probably. You don't understand, uh, you know, the idea behind sanctification, right? All these things you learn. You have not learned those things yet. Yes, brother. Sorry to interrupt you again. I, just, I was curious, when it comes to the, the doctrine of original sin, yes. does it state that we inherit our sin nature from Adam or that we're held morally culpable for the sin that he did? So, like, say I'm a non-believer mm-hmm. and I go to stand before God. Will the sin of Adam add to my punishment in hell or just the sins that I committed because I inherited you know, I, I think that the theological answer to that is uh, that you that Adam sins enough, basically. You inherit Adam's sin. The reason why I don't know specifically, this is where I show my own ignorance, right? I, and I've, I've been searching down this answer recently. I've been trying, like very recently, I've been trying to answer this question. Because you know the part where it says, um, I think it's in Ezekiel, where it says that the son will not bear the sin of his father, everyone bears their own sin. But it also says in Deuteronomy, I am the Lord your God, you know, uh, compassionate, gracious, uh, forgiving sins for thousands, I'm misquoting this terribly, but will by no means clear the guilty, right, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the sons for the third and the fourth generation. Something like that. Really bad translation, guys, I'm sorry. But the the point is, is that there's these two conflicting ideas where if my father sins, I don't, I'm not suffering for his sin, right? But at the same time, there are sins that pass down. So what are those, right? What, what's the difference between it? Is it the idea, and the, one of the answers I saw is actions have consequences. If your, sin, your father's sin in the wilderness, now you're going to have to wander for 40 years, right? So in a sense, you are suffering for the sins of your father because you're having to wander. Whereas you, when you die, the people that actually built the golden calf, right, and worshipped at the base of Mount Sinai, they're only going to be culpable for that sin, not the children, even though they're suffering for it. Yes, Brother Christian. Uh, as a parent, you don't have to teach your children how to lie. Right. That's passed down to every generation. Right. So it's, it doesn't matter. Right. Everybody knows that. Right. There is a sense in which the way that I look at it, and this is... I'm not trying to preach heresy from the mini pulpit here, but the idea is that sin corrupts the world, right? You think about where did disease come from? Where did viruses come from? And all these things, right? It's the corruption of the world. People lived longer back then because there was less of them, and they hadn't been around for very long. As time's gone on, thankfully we have medical technology that's helped us solve these problems and live longer, but we are still dying with more things around us all the time. 
And I think there's just this corruption that's building up, like rust, like corrosion, right? It just like keeps building up this crud all over the world. And in the same ways, we of our natures have been corroded and corrupted by the sin that Adam gave us. In a way, we are responsible. It's going to make you sin as soon as you're capable of sinning or culpable of sinning. But it's not that his sin goes to your account. It's that you are affected by this sin nature to the degree that as soon as you consciously can sin, you will. So that's the way I'm, I balance it. Now, anyone that uh, has scriptures that, that say, uh, you know, very specifically that is, I'm willing to change my mind. Um, I'm searching out this answer for myself. Great question, though. Um, this is the question that we always have to ask about what, why do people that have not heard the gospel, why are they still culpable for sin, even though they haven't heard the gospel? And this is the reason why, because of creation's witness and the sin of Adam. But the good news is that even if you, as an imperfect vessel or person that doesn't really fully understand every in and out of those kinds of questions, we can still get the gospel right, communicate that to someone, and they can be saved, right? So just because you may not know the answer, like I do, don't to that question perfectly yet, I can still talk to my family members and say, you need to believe the gospel, right? That's, that's the takeaway. You are responsible for what you do with Jesus. Romans 10 says, how then can they call on the one they have not believed in? And how can they believe in the one in whom they have not heard? And how can they hear without someone preaching to them? So even the Bible makes it clear that you have to preach the gospel to someone. It's not something that they can just kind of come to an understanding on their own. So in apologetics, anyone who raised this issue usually has heard of the gospel and is accountable to God, right? Uh, a very few people in America have not heard some kind of variation of it. So this idea that I haven't heard, uh, they're usually talking about, you know, tribes and other places elsewhere in the world. So answer this question and then move on to the gospel. Any other questions about that particular Last one on your um, outline here. How do I engage a believer in a major world religion? And we talked about this last week, the idea of Islam as submission to Allah. Person, the work of Christ and mercy and judgment are ways to tackle this issue. Uh, Hindus, one God, many gods. Uh, karma as this kind of offense against the holy God is similar. We, could, we can try to um, turn the conversation by talking about how karma is not some impersonal force like gravity, but rather this idea of doing things actually offends a holy God. And we can contrast mysticism with the actual historicity of Christ. I think that's, a, that's an amazing thing when you think about when we say the Nicene Creed, or Nicene Creed? Yeah. Nicene Creed, uh, before we take the Lord's Supper, there's actually a part in there that I always find amazing, and that says, suffered under Pontius Pilate. Do you think, think about that? That's historical. That's not something that happened you know, on a cave painting somewhere. You know, when you think about the legends of like Horus and, you know, Egyptian gods and stuff, they can't even point to when that happened, right? There's no historical date that we can say, okay, where, where did this Horus person exist? But Jesus actually has a timestamp, right? He actually existed alongside actual people. And we talked about that when we talked about the reliability. It's an amazing thing. How many details are in the Bible that's clear that it's first person account? Tree species in places where you can find them, right? Rubble, directions to towns. Yes, Christian. I'm sorry for interrupting one more time. There was a, a famous historian by the name of Sir William Ramsey who gathered the uh, authenticity and the historicity of what Luke had written down uh, in not only the book of Luke but also in the book of Acts. He spent 12 years 
in the Holy Land and in what is now Turkey. Researching, finally looked at it, came back and said, yeah, I'm a Christian now. Luke is the <laughs> finest historian of antiquity ever. Right. It is amazing. I've heard something similar that, not, I don't think Ramsey, but something similar where people have gone and tried to disprove it. There's actually, it's really interesting when you look into it because you have things like when Jericho fell, uh, you remember that story back in the Old Testament? I don't know if anyone, I'm going to give a quick overview for people that don't know it. You know, they're coming to the promised land. They have this town named Jericho and they have to march around it seven times and they all shout and the walls come down. And one of the things that it says around that time is that the walls of Jericho were never, will never be rebuilt. But then later in the New Testament, you have them go to Jericho. Oh, contradiction. What's going on? Well, actually not. There's actually a historical site of rubble Jericho that never was rebuilt and a small little Jericho that just inherited the name of Jericho later. Well, there's times where it says that Jesus went up or down to Jericho and people said, wait a second, that's incorrect with the locations in the Bible. Like, okay, if he was in this town and he went over here to Jericho, how did he go down to Jericho? Well, there's two Jerichos. <laughs> but if you didn't know the historical location, how would you know that? If you were writing a fake Bible, right? You would just use one Jericho all the time. And yet this guy, Luke, knew that there were two Jerichos. That's something we don't know. We don't live in the Israel or the Promised Land, right? But at the same time, it shows how true the Bible is. It's an amazing thing. So, we can contrast the historicity of Christ with Hinduism. Buddhists, nirvana by eliminating desire. This is the, the depressing religion we were talking about. I don't think most Buddhists know that what they're trying to do is become perfect so they can become nothing and just cease to exist. Um, it, it is really an interesting thing. I think that uh, the people that do believe that, I don't understand why they, I, I think that's probably why they join monasteries, right? They're trying to get away from it all because they know they can't enjoy anything. But the idea is they're trying to escape suffering by eliminating desire. And we talked about last week how you really can't eliminate any desire. Desire is what motivates us. But Christ defeats pain and suffering on the cross, right? When he died on the cross and he said it is finished, he wasn't just saying the work that he had done was finished, but rather it was the start of the end, right? We're in the end times, if you want to talk about it that way, right? We are now at the point where the promise is fulfilled and we will have we can have this assurance that even if it may not happen in our lifetime, there will come a time when God eliminates pain and suffering. He makes us united with all Christians. We get to live in heaven with him. And when we say heaven, heaven on earth, because he's going to remake the earth into a heaven that he's going to live here, a new garden of even, if you will. You know, there's a story in Hebrews that's, uh, you know, the chapter of faith. If you guys know that one, it's, I think it's Hebrews 11. And it's really amazing because there's, I was listening to this one sermon and it was talking about how a promise was given to Abraham, right? I'll give you a promised land. I'll make your descendants as numerous as the grains of sand and the stars in the sky. And he carries that promise and he wanders and he wanders, never sees it. You know, he's a son. And his son Isaac wanders and wanders and he, he's successful, but he never sees it, right? And then he has a son, Jacob, who becomes Israel, Right? He wanders and he wanders. And he, he never sees it, right? He never sees his promised land. Doesn't give it to him. Then he has a son. His name is Joseph, right? And Joseph gets captured and put into slavery. And then he ends up in Egypt. And he ends up becoming number two. And he saves all the things. He says, what you planned for evil, God meant for good because I've saved all of these people. And I've collected all of Israel kind of in Egypt, unfortunately. And they become slaves 400 years later. But he tells his sons, keep my bones and put them in the promised land. That's an amazing thing. 
the faith of these men that they could believe. I didn't see it in my, my time. My granddad didn't see it in his time. My great-granddad didn't see it in time. My great-great-granddad didn't see it in his time, but I know God's going to fulfill his promise. And then it says in the, in the Old Testament when they came into the promised land, they brought the bones of Joseph. That's an amazing thing. I'm like, what? Someone kept on, kept hold to like a femur bone. I don't know if the whole bone set was there, but you know, someone kept a hold of that because they were like, we're believing God for this promise. That is an amazing thing. And here we are, and it hasn't happened in 40 years. And we're like, what's going on? Yes, Bob. Uh, I was watching a documentary a while back. Wow. Oh, wow. Yeah, our brother was saying that. If you guys didn't hear that, that there was actually a tomb that they found in a historical dig, that there was a, a statue of a man that had like a multicolored cloak, but there was no bones there. Like it was, it, they think it's the tomb of Joseph, but they didn't have bones because they, they took him. That actually makes sense. If they went when they were leaving Egypt, that actually makes more sense, right? That they went to the tomb and they said, oh, we got to take bones of Joseph. He asked our family to take it, and then they left. That actually makes a lot more sense. They went to the sepulcher and took it out. So, I got a little off topic. Um, I'm trying to go back to where I was. But the point is, when we have assurance of the end of pain and suffering, right? And when you see the faith of the people in the Old Testament, it specifically says in the Bible that those stories are there to encourage us. And I find that encouraging, right? That God kept his, his promise, even if I don't see it in my lifetime, the promises that I'm holding on to, right? Okay, so wrapping up. Many religions make exclusive truth claims. Making such a claim does not prove truth, however, but it's not possible for all the major world religions to be valid, uh, to, to be valid ways to God when they make contradictory claims, like right, the bumper sticker that says coexist, you know, the tattoo, you see people's arms. That, that can't possibly work because we all have conflicting things. It's not like we get parts of the truth and we're trying to assemble the truth. Fundamentally, they disagree on who God is, who man is, how man is right with God, fundamental questions. Those are questions that I actually think, if you want to know what a person actually believes, ask them, what do you think about God? What do you think about people, right? Are we mostly good, somewhat good, not good at all, right? And how do you think about how you get right with God? Those are fundamental questions. So we talked about this a little bit, and I covered it a little bit, but why do we believe an ancient book this ancient book is the Word of God, or why do we follow this ancient book that's, you know, supposedly 1,500 years old, and it was 66 books by 40 authors? Why? <laughs> I saw a really snarky answer to this recently, and it was like, why wouldn't you believe something that's ancient? You're going to believe something that's made up 20 years ago, right? It doesn't make any sense, right? You'd want to have some kind of a, of a history, but all that said, we've talked about this before. Brother Christians brought this up. The New Testament documents are historically reliable and credible, you know, we have the earliest copies, right? The earliest copy that we have is 400 B.C. Uh, of, the, of the Old Testament. And the New Testament is 125 A.D. It was written between 40 and 100 A.D. So we're talking about 25 years afterwards is, is their closest. Um, number of copies of the earliest one would be Homer, and that's uh, 643. And we have 24,000 plus copies. So we have many, many copies. I would recommend you listening to the talk we did about 
reliability of the uh, New Testament, because that will help uh, explain why that's a good thing. We don't have time to get into that, but that's a really good thing. Despite, that it is fact, despite the fact that it was written by many different men over 1,500 years, there isn't a single place where a biblical author disagrees with another biblical author. The Bible is united in teaching its own authority, despite the fact that it was written by so many authors. Over the last 100 years, the veracity and reliability of the Bible has been vindicated again and again as more evidence has been brought to bear. There's a lot of really interesting things if you're into this, talking about the reliability of the Bible and how in the last hundred years we found so many things that are amazing. Well, first of all, the Dead Sea Scrolls, right, where there's a preserved scroll in the caves of Qumran, where they actually had a complete, um, you know, uh, uh, copy of uh, Isaiah, the Isaiah Scroll, which shows that the Isaiah Scroll had not changed since that time period, which is, once again, it's an amazing thing. Um, I think there was a, a couple of, there, the way that scrolls were, if you think about a large scroll, is they wouldn't just have Isaiah. They would have multiple books written down. They would just call it the Isaiah scroll because that was the major prophet. It was the first book that it started with, and then a lot of other people would be underneath it. So it would get the name of the most prominent prophet. There were some issues with some later books in that. They actually have a, a, like a, not a Gnostic gospel. I think it's the book of Enoch or something. Some kind of apocryphal book is in there too. But you have to remember that these people would want to preserve anything right? If you think about wanting to preserve stuff, you know, you want to put apocryphal books in there too because you don't want anything lost to history. That's just a little quote, but we've even found ways to take mummies who were wrapped in paper and we can scan those to see the text of the New Testament inside of the wrappings. It's an amazing thing. Instead of having to peel it off and trying to get the text, we know what it is. Because the, the Christians, they were so poor, they write on anything. Even on what we consider like newsprint, and then would they make plaster of Paris? You ever do that in class where you, you take newspaper and like that paste and you would make the sculptures? That's how they would make mummies. And so we, we know that there's text on the inside of that from these poor Christians, but we couldn't get to it. Now we have lasers and things that actually can scan it. And even with that, we have proved that the Bible is historically reliable over and over and over again. An amazing thing. Historical finds of texts and archaeology and artifacts do not prove scriptures are inspired, but no architectural, uh, archaeological discovery has disproved the historical veracity and reliability of the New Testament. So what I'm saying is, just because it's historically reliable does not necessarily mean it's true. I believe it's true. It's not but it not, does not follow that it's true. But it does prove that it hasn't changed, which is important for us. Jesus' character is shown to be trustworthy. So we talked about this last week. Um, the uh, four-part test is, was Jesus a liar, a lunatic, lord, or a legend, right? In legend, some people assert that he has never existed, but there's so much historical and archaeological evidence to support his existence that every reputable historian agrees that he was not just a legend. So now, what are the, what's the actual three options we have? Was he a liar? If he was a liar, why would he die for his claim when he could easily have avoided such a cruel death with just a couple of choice words? Right? He could have said, yeah, I, I, I'm not that person, right? Or could have pleaded for uh, Pilate's mercy. And also, yes? Right, yeah, if you're beaten with canes and other things like that, yeah, you're, you're going to try to get out of it immediately, right? <laughs> um, lunatic. And if he was, and even if he was not a liar, then he would have to be a lunatic, because how did he engage... Uh, like, the, the claims that he made about who he was, he claimed to be God. He claimed that if you followed his teachings, you'd be saved. He, he claimed that he was the truth and the life. And yet, 
He engaged in intelligent debates with his opponents, and he handled the stress of his betrayal and the crucifixion while continuing to show a deep love for his antagonists and for his mother, right? He said, John, take care of my mother. He, he, like, it, it's a contradiction. He couldn't have been a lunatic. So if he's not a liar and he's not a lunatic, the last option you really, really you have is that he was Lord. He was who he said he was. He was Lord and God. And the evidence supports this claim. Jesus claims that the Old and New Testament books were the Word of God. So we talked about in, uh, last, um, in the reliability of the New Testament, not just the historical evidence, but also the idea that Jesus himself made so many references to the Old Testament that you, he believed it to be factual. He talks about Adam and Eve as they were factual living people that actually existed, not myths, not metaphors, but really people. Jonah and the whale, he makes a reference to that as it actually happened, not that it was a myth or a metaphor or, that never, or it was just some kind of you know, parable that he made up. He even in John, uh, or I'm sorry, in Matthew 22, he even argues from the tense of a verb that happens. So when he says that every jot and tittle would not pass the law until it was fulfilled, he was talking about literally everything is the inspired word of God. Over and over and over again, I won't, I won't cover all of this because it's granular, but over and over and over again, he says to people when he asks them questions, have you not read? Have you not read? Have you not read? He clearly expects them to have believed the words as they were given, not say, well, you know, it was a long time ago. Seems like an old book. I don't know if we can trust it. Maybe I should join something called the Jesus Seminar and have colored beads and say, this was probably the words of Jesus. That's actually what they do. If you've ever heard of the Jesus Seminar, they all vote on if this was actually legitimate and if it's not, and they have these colored beads. And there's only like 3% of the Bible they think is accurate. Yeah, it's, it's wild. Yes, uh, absolutely. It's, it is a waste of time. But, I mean, that's what happens when you have uh, scholars who don't really believe in um, supernatural. Exactly, thank you. Um, the most famous story uh, is, uh, that I always think of when I, when I think about this topic is the two disciples are on the road to Emmaus in Luke 24, and they're walking along, and Jesus says to them in verse 17, "Was this conversation that you are holding with each other as you walk? And they stopped still, looking sad. Then one said, named Cleopas, answered him, Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? And he said to them, What things? And they said to him, Concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, is now the third day since these things have happened. So clearly they understood that he had said multiple times that he was going to come back after three days, right? Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning. And when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had even seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it was just as the women had said, but him they did not see. And then Jesus says to them, how do we follow that answer? We try to think of, like, how would you answer that question? Well, I know it's been hard. It's been hard for all of us. I've had a hard, hard week myself. That's not what Jesus says. He says this, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe that all, all that the prophets had spoken, was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. 
So he didn't really have a lot of sympathy for them. He said, it's pretty clear from the Old Testament that this was supposed to happen, and I'm surprised you didn't get that. Now, how can a person hold, that, hold people in this time period to that standard when they didn't even have all the tools that we have? Right? They just had a, a, a copying methodology to make sure that they got the, the Word of God right. And yet God said, I'm preserving that for you, and now I'm going to hold you to it morally. You are morally culpable for the things written in the Bible. You know, that's one of the things that's actually kind of scary, right? If you hear the gospel and you're not saved, God holds that against you, right? He, that's why when, when you preach the gospel to someone, you're preaching life to them, but it also can be condemnation because just like we read in John 3, it says, you are condemned already because you did not believe in the name of the only Son of God. It's a heavy weight, but God calls us to, to just preach the gospel and then he does the, the judgment, not us. But this is why you see Paul pleading with people right? Pleading with people, begging with people, trying to reason with them, because he understands that when he tells people, he could give them life, but he also brings judgment as well. That's why I, that's why I look at it, too. Any questions now that we've finished up? That's kind of the wrap-up of the overview. We have about six minutes or so, thank you, brother, um, to answer any questions or talk about anything you guys want to talk about. Um, one thing I wanted to bring up was I actually have about six more weeks that I can teach, so I'm going to teach a secondary lesson either on the fear of man or uh, relating the Bible to other people. And I was wondering if you guys want to talk to me afterwards or maybe we can take a vote of what you guys want me to do. It's just two curriculums. I haven't really studied them yet, but what, what's more interesting to you? Talking about how to overcome the fear of man or how to understand and relate the Bible to your life. Just come see me afterwards. Any other questions or any statements? Yes, brother. Person interest. And he goes through uh, methodically, like a, uh, a homicide detective, oh, which he is, uh, ex- explain how, even when, if he did not have the New Testament, with all, with everything else that there is, it can only be Jesus Christ. Not Muhammad, mm-hmm. not Joseph Smith, not Buddha, nobody else. It's a wonderful book. I've read it twice. Sounds great. Person of interest is what Brother Christian was bringing up. Uh, there's a lot of great books, and it's always hard to get through all of them, but that one sounds interesting. And there's one more, is that on YouTube, there is a channel called uh, Biblical Archaeological Research uh, Institute, hmm. and they uh, actually do the digging, and they go and look at the archaeological uh, evidence for our faith, hmm. and it's, it's wonderful. They've got the videos. That's great, especially since most of us can't make it to the promised land in our lifetimes, right, where it'll be great to see those things in, in real, uh, you know, and seeing it in video. At least it's a small uh, picture into it. I have seen a, a there was a, uh, an apologetics video I saw where it was comparing Mormonism to biblical Christianity, and they actually brought one of these Mormon scholars to the stones surrounding the Temple Mount, and they talked about the story where Jesus says, you see these stones, and he was pointing up at the Temple Mount, saying not one will be laid upon another. And you can literally go to the road, and they still have these giant limestone blocks still in the road that's crushed the road because the Romans melted all the gold off the temple and threw the rocks off, and they're collecting all the gold, and that still exists to that day. It's an amazing prophecy that Jesus made that is fulfilled that we can actually go and look at. They, they've never rebuilt it. It's an amazing thing. But obviously in comparison to Mormonism that has a ton of false prophecies, like you can go to the field where Joseph Smith said that the temple, their temple would be built in their lifetime, and it's still just an empty grass field. Yeah, in his lifetime, yeah. And then Jesus was going to come back. Yes. 
Yeah, it's, uh, there's a great book, um, if you guys are interested, called One Nation Under Gods, plural. And uh, it has a whole uh, kind of an appendix that goes through all the false prophecies of Joseph Smith and actually explains what he said and why that's uh, a false prophecy. Any other questions or comments? Anything before we wrap up? Yes, Brother Julian. I'm not arguing that apologetics isn't great. I believe it is great. Uh, what are they, if we know that the gospel is saved, mm-hmm. what are they, and we know that ultimately only God can change the heart, only God can open the eyes of the us, what does it mean that us constantly engaging in apologetics is so our brother was saying that if uh, we know that the gospel saves and we know that God changes the heart, uh, engaging in apologetics, where, where, what's the point, right? Like, is there a, there a reason for it? And this is the, the thing I think that we always struggle with as Christians, right, is this tension between means what, and how God uses means, right? So the classic um, Calvinist, if I can use that term, or Reformed hyper-Calvinist or hyper-Reformed, I don't know what, what the terminology you want to use, but the idea is if God saves everyone, why do you preach at all, right? Because he can, he can do it on his own without us. But we know that the Bible clearly states that he uses means. He uses us to do that, right? And why would you pray if God knows everything, right? It says that he knows what you're going to ask before you ask it. So why would you pray? And, but the Bible commands us to pray. So we, in our prayer, in some way that we can't understand, we are the means to helping other people. And then we pray for, Lord, I need some help from someone. And then he sends your brother to help you. It's like, well, yeah, I was expecting God to like, you know, snap his fingers and make that happen. But I guess Brother Julian coming to help change my brakes would actually help me too, right? And those, those things slot together amazingly, right? Where God's answering prayers with other Christians in the family of God. And he's using us to pray for one another. And yet we're, we're solving all those issues. So in the same way, apologetics doesn't save. But we are trying to, just as Paul did, reason with people, explain the scriptures to them. Even Jesus explained the prophets and Moses to them. If he was going to save them, why did he do that, right? Because it doesn't explain what he did. That would have been an amazing sermon, right? Jesus telling you from Moses and the prophets all things concerning himself, and we don't have that text. Kind of a missed opportunity. But the point is, he uses means himself. He uses himself to explain to people, and then they use that to explain to other people, right? So all those things interconnect and work together. I hope that answers that question. I agree with you. I, I guess what I, like an observation I've made in the many times I've had conversations with people and it's apologetic, it's always, it's like a... Rabbit trail? Yeah. Yeah. You have to learn how to answer a question, preach the gospel. Re, watch Ray Comfort. He does this great. They ask a very difficult question. I'll talk about that in a second. Let me tell you the gospel. Gets the gospel. Do you understand what I was saying? Now let me answer your question. And then he brings it back. It is, but you, I think you have to be intellectually honest enough to say that these questions have answers. And I want to help you understand it. Because there are distractions, there are things that even the devil uses that are, that are snares to pull their, their minds away from it. Right? Um, yes, brother. Right. Right. He, our brother was saying that it's good to use 
apologetics as a, as a springboard to start a conversation that leads to the gospel and use natural examples to explain the supernatural, which I, I, I've found in my own life too. Sorry guys, we have to wrap up. If you have any other questions or comments or things, let me know afterwards and we'll compile them. If you have any thoughts about the next lesson, let me know uh, what you're interested. Otherwise, I'll just pick one <laughs> and you'll be blessed hopefully. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you so much for this great conversation. I hope that this lesson has blessed people. I hope that you would use it to your glory. I pray, Father, that you would help people um, in their conversations with their family members and their friends and the people that they love. Pray that you would give them the right answers when they need it, that you wouldn't have their brains lock up, but God, uh, help them to use the defense of apologetics and yet use the offense of preaching the gospel to never shy away from that, to have courage and boldness, to tell people the truth so they can be right with you. Lord, that is our deep, heartfelt prayer that our family members and our friends, people we care about and love very deeply, would have their hearts changed and their minds changed and that would believe the gospel. Lord, you know. You know our heart. You know our desires. You know what we need. I pray, Father, that you would help us, help each one as they need it. Thank you again, and I pray that we would, our minds would be focused as we go into a, a continuing worship in the main service. Forgive us our sins. In Jesus' name, amen.